Hello again. I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks for joining me tonight. Tonight's program is the third in a four-part series, The Burning Secret, by the Austrian writer Stefan Zweig. Twelve-year-old Edgar is with his mother on holiday in the resort town of Semmering. He has formed an adoring attachment to a mysterious aristocrat who, it becomes clear, is interested in the boy only as a means of getting to his mother. Growing suspicions turn to outright hostility to both the mother and the baron, as Edgar finds himself not only excluded, but lied to. After an angry outburst at the baron, Edgar is banished to his room in the hotel. It is striking that the empathetic author Stefan Zweig presents the story through the eyes of all the three principals entering into the thoughts of each of them. Yet, in this story of a coming of age, the focus is really on Edgar, as witness the fact that only he is given a name. The others are referred to throughout only as the Baron and the Mother, or Mama. The Burning Secret, Chapter 10 Tracks in the Moonlight The waiter, after serving Edgar with dinner in his room, closed and locked the door behind him. The child started up in rage. His mother's doings. She must have given orders for him to be locked in like a vicious beast. What is going on downstairs, he brooded grimly, while I am locked in up here. What are they talking about, I wonder? Is the mystery taking place, or am I missing it? Oh, this secret that I sent all around me when I am with grown-ups, this thing that they shut me out from at night, and that makes them lower their voices when I come upon them unawares. This great secret has been near me for days, close at hand, yet still out of reach. I've done everything to try to get at it. Edgar recalled the time when he had pilfered books from his father's library and had read them, and found they contained the mystery, though he could not understand it. There must be some sort of seal, he concluded, either in himself or in the others that had first to be removed before the mystery could be fathomed. He also recalled how he had begged the servant-girl to explain the obscure passages in the books, and she had only laughed at him. Dreadful, he thought, to be a child, full of curiosity, and yet not to be allowed even to ask for information, always to be ridiculed by the grown-ups as if he were stupid and useless. But never mind, I'm going to find it out and very soon I feel sure I will. Already part of it is in my hands, and I'm not going to let go till I know it all. He listened to find out if anyone were coming to the room. Outside, the trees were rustling in a strong breeze, which caught up the silvery mirror of the moonlight and dashed it in shivering bits through the network of the branches. It can't be anything good that they intend to do, else they wouldn't have used such mean little lies to get me out of the way. Of course they're laughing at me, the miserable creatures, because they're rid of me at last. But I'll be the one to laugh last. How stupid of me to allow myself to be locked in this room and give them a moment to themselves, instead of sticking to them like a burr and watching their every move. I know that grown-ups are sometimes careless, and they will give themselves away, too. Grown-ups think we're still babies and always go to sleep at night. They forget we can pretend to be asleep and can go on listening, and we can pretend to be stupid when we're really very bright. Edgar smiled to himself sarcastically when at this point his thoughts reverted to the birth of a baby cousin. 
The family in his presence had pretended to be surprised, and he had known very well they were not surprised, because for weeks he had heard them, at night when they thought he was asleep, discussing the coming event, and he resolved to fool his mother and the baron in the same way. Oh, if only I could peep through the keyhole and watch them while they think they're alone and safe. Maybe it would be a good idea to ring, and the boy would come and open the door and ask what I want. Or I could make a terrible noise, smashing things, and then they'd unlock the door and I'd slip out. On second thought, he decided against either plan. He was too proud for that. No one should see how contemptibly he had been treated, and he would wait until the next day. From beneath his window came a woman's laugh. Edgar started. Perhaps it was his mother laughing. She had good cause to laugh and make fun of the helpless little boy who was locked up when he was a nuisance and thrown into a corner like a bundle of rags. Cautiously, he leaned out of the window and looked. No, it wasn't his mother, but a group of high-spirited girls teasing a young man. In looking out, Edgar observed that his window was not very high above the ground, and instantly it occurred to him to jump down and go spy on his mother and the baron. He became wildly, joyfully excited at his decision, feeling that now he had the great secret in his grasp. There was no danger in it, no people were passing by, and with that he had jumped out, nothing but the light crunch of the gravel under his feet to betray his action. In these two days stealing around and spying had become the delight of his life, and intense bliss, mingled with a faint tremor of alarm, filled him now as he tiptoed around the outside of the hotel, carefully avoiding the lights. He looked first into the dining-room, their seats were empty. From window to window he went peeping, always outside the hotel, for fear if he went inside he might run up against them in one of the corridors. Nowhere were they to be seen, and he was about to give up hope when he saw two shadows emerge from a side entrance. He shrank back into the dark, and his mother and her inseparable escort came out. In the nick of time, he thought. What were they saying? he couldn't hear. They were talking in such low voices, and the wind was making such an uproar in the trees. His mother laughed. It was a laugh he had never before heard from her, a peculiarly sharp, nervous laugh, as though she had suddenly been tickled. It made a curious impression on the boy, and rather startled him. But if she laughs, he thought, it can't be anything dangerous, nothing very big and mighty that they are concealing from me. He was a trifle disillusioned. Yet why were they leaving the hotel? Where were they going together in the night? Every now and then great drifts of clouds obscured the moon, and the darkness was then so intense that one could scarcely see the white road at one's feet. But soon the moon would emerge again and robe the landscape in a sheet of silver. In one of the moments when the whole countryside was flooded in brilliance, Edgar saw the two silhouettes going down the road, or rather one silhouette, so closely did they cling together as if in terror. But where were they going? The fir-trees groaned, the woods were all astir, uncannily, as though from a wild chase in their depths. I will follow them, thought Edgar. They cannot hear me in all this noise. Keeping to the edge of the woods, in the shadow, 
from which he could easily see them on the clear white road, he traced them relentlessly, blessing the wind for making his footsteps inaudible, and cursing it for carrying away the sound of their talk. It was not until he heard what they said that he could be sure of learning the secret. The baron and his companion walked on without any misgivings. They felt all alone in the wide, resounding night, and lost themselves in their growing excitement, never dreaming that on the high edges of the road, in the leafy darkness, every movement of theirs was being watched, and a pair of eyes was clutching them in a wild grip of hatred and curiosity. Suddenly they stood still, and Edgar, too, instantly stopped and pressed close up against a tree, in terror that they might turn back and reach the hotel before him, and his mother would discover his room was empty and learn that she had been followed. Then he would have to give up hope of ever wresting the secret from them. But the couple hesitated. Evidently there was a difference of opinion between them. Fortunately at that moment the moon was shining undimmed by clouds, and he could see everything clearly. The baron pointed to a side-path leading down into the valley, where the moonlight descended, not in a broad flood of brilliance, but only in patches filtering here and there through the heavy foliage. "'Why does he want to go down there?' thought Edgar. His mother apparently refused to take the path, and the baron was trying to persuade her. Edgar could tell from his gestures that he was talking emphatically. The child was alarmed. What did this man want of his mother? Why did he attempt, the villain, to drag her into the dark? From his books, to him the world, came vivid memories of murder, kidnapping, and sinister crimes. There he had it. The baron meant to murder her. That was why he had kept him, Edgar, at a distance, and enticed her to this lonely spot. Should he cry for help? Murder. He wanted to shriek, but his throat and lips were dry, and no sound issued from his mouth. His nerves were tense as a bowstring, he could scarcely stand upright on his shaking knees, and he put out his hand for support when, crack, a twig snapped in his grasp. At the sound of the breaking twig, the two turned about in alarm and stared into the darkness. Edgar clung to the tree, his little body completely wrapped in obscurity, quiet as death. Yet they seemed to have been frightened. "'Let's go home,' he could now hear his mother say anxiously, and the baron, who evidently was also upset, assented. Pressed close against each other, they walked back very slowly. Their embarrassment was Edgar's good fortune. He got down on all fours and crept, tearing his hands and clothes on the brambles, through the undergrowth to the turn of the woods, from where he ran breathlessly back to the hotel and upstairs to his room. Luckily the key was sticking on the outside, and in one second he was in his room lying on the bed where he had to rest a few moments to give his pounding heart a chance to quiet down. After two or three minutes he got up and looked out the window to await their return. They must have been walking very slowly indeed. It took them an eternity. Cautiously he peeped out of the shadowed frame. There, at length, they came at a snail's pace, the moonlight shining on their clothes. They looked like ghosts in the greenish shimmer, and the delicious horror came upon him again whether it really might have been a murder, 
and what a dreadful catastrophe he had averted by his presence. He could clearly see their faces, which looked chalky in the white light. His mother had an expression of rapture that in her was strange to him, while the baron looked hard and dejected, probably because he had failed in carrying out his purpose. They were very close to the hotel now, but it was not until they reached the steps that their figures separated from each other. Would they look up? Edgar waited eagerly. No. They have forgotten all about me, he thought wrathfully, and then in triumph, but I haven't forgotten you. You think I am asleep or non-existent, but you'll find out you're mistaken. I'll watch every step you take until I have got the secret out of you, you villain, the dreadful secret that keeps me awake nights. I'll tear the strings that tie you two together. I'm not going to go to sleep. As the couple entered the doorway, their shadows mingled again in one broad band that soon dwindled and disappeared. And once more the space in front of the hotel lay serene in the moonlight like a meadow of snow. CHAPTER Ten, THE SURPRISE ATTACK Edgar moved away from the window, breathing heavily in a shiver of horror. A gruesome mystery of this sort had never touched his life before, the bookish world of thrilling adventure, excitement, deception, and murder having always belonged to the same realm as the wonderland of fairy tales, the realm of dreams, far away in the unreal and unattainable. Now he was plunged right into the midst of this fascinating, awful world, and his whole being quivered deliriously. Who was this mysterious being who had stepped into his quiet life? Was he really a murderer? If not, why did he always try to drag his mother to a remote, dark spot? Something dreadful, Edgar felt certain, was about to happen. He did not know what to do. In the morning he would surely write or telegraph his father. Or why not that very moment? His mother was not in her room yet, but was still with that horrid person. Between the solid door to Edgar's room and the flimsy outer one there was a tiny passageway. He opened his door softly now, closed it behind him, and stuck himself in the passageway, listening for his mother's steps in the corridor, determined not to let her stay by herself a single moment. The corridor this midnight hour was quiet and empty and lighted faintly by a single gas-jet. The minutes stretched themselves into hours, it seemed, before he heard cautious footsteps coming up the stairs. He strained his ears to listen. The steps did not move forward with the quick, regular beat of someone making straight for his room, but sounded hesitating and dragging as though up a steep, difficult climb. Edgar also caught the sound of whispering, a pause, then whispering again. He was a quiver with excitement. Was it both of them coming up together? Was he still with her? The whispering was too low and far away for him to catch what they were saying. But the footsteps, though slowly and with pauses between, were drawing nearer. And now he could hear the baron's voice, oh, how he hated the sound of it, saying something in a low, hoarse tone which he could not get, and then his mother answering as though to ward something off. No, no, not tonight. Edgar's excitement rose to fever heat. As they came nearer, he would be bound to catch everything they said. 
each inch closer that they drew was like a physical hurt in his breast. And the baron's voice, how ugly it seemed, that greedy, grasping, disgusting voice. Don't be cruel. You were so lovely this evening. No, no, I mustn't. I can't. Let me go. There was such alarm in his mother's voice that the child was terrified. What did the baron want her to do? Why was she afraid? They were quite close up to him now. He was a foot or two away from them, trembling, invisible, hidden only by the thin material of the outer door. Edgar heard his mother give a faint groan, as though her powers of resistance were weakening. But what was that? Edgar could hear that they had passed his mother's door, and had kept on walking down the corridor. Where was he dragging her off to? Why was she not replying any more? Had he gagged her, and was he squeezing her throat? Wild with this thought, Edgar pushed the door open a crack, and peeped at the two figures in the dim corridor. The baron had his arm round the woman's waist, and was forcing her along gently, evidently with little resistance from her. He stopped at his own door. He wants to drag her in and do the terrible deed. Wildly, he throws the door open and rushes down the hall toward them. His mother screams, as out of the darkness something pounces on her, and she seems to fall in a faint. The baron holding her up with difficulty. The next instant he feels a small fist dealing him a blow that smashes his lips against his teeth and something clawing at him cat-like. He releases the terrified woman, who quickly makes her escape, and without knowing against whom he strikes out blindly. The child knows he is the weaker of the two, yet he refuses to give in. At last— at last the great moment has come when he can unburden himself of all his betrayed love and accumulated hatred. With set lips and a look of frenzy on his face, he pounds away at the baron with his two small fists. By this time the baron has recognized his assailant. He too is primed with hatred of the little spy who has been dogging him and interfering with his sport, and he hits back, striking out blindly. Edgar groans once or twice, but doesn't let go and doesn't cry for help. They wrestle a fraction of a minute in the dark corridor, grimly and sullenly without the exchange of a single word. But pretty soon the baron comes to his senses, and realizing how absurd is this duel with a half-grown boy, he catches hold of Edgar to throw him off. But Edgar, feeling his muscles weakening, and conscious that the next moment he will be beaten, snaps in a fury at the strong, firm hand trying to grab the nape of his neck. The baron can't restrain a slight outcry, and lets go of Edgar, who seizes the opportunity to run to his room and throw the bolt. The midnight struggle has lasted no more than a minute. Not one in any of the rooms along the corridor has caught a sound of it. Everything is silent, wrapped in sleep. The baron wipes his bleeding hand with his handkerchief and peers into the dark uneasily to make sure no one has been watching or listening. All he sees is the one gas-jet winking at him, he thinks, sarcastically. Chapter 12 Thunderstorm Edgar woke up the next morning dazed, wondering whether it had not been a horrid dream and with a sickly feeling that hangs on after a nightmare, his head leaden and his body like a piece of wood. 
It was only after a minute or so that he realized with a sort of alarm that he was still in his clothes. He jumped out of bed and went to look at himself in the mirror. The image of his own pale, distorted face, with his hair all rumpled, and a red, elongated swelling on his forehead, made him recoil with a shudder. He recalled the details of the battle in the corridor, and his rushing back to his room and throwing himself onto the bed, dressed. He must have fallen asleep thus, and dreamed everything over again, only worse, and mingled with the warmish smell of fresh-flowing blood. Footsteps crunched on the gravel beneath his window, voices rose like invisible birds, and the sun shone deep into the room. It must be very late, he thought, glancing at his watch. But the hands pointed to midnight. In the excitement of the day before, he had forgotten to wind it. This uncertainty, this hanging suspended in time, disturbed him, and his sense of disgust was increased by his confusion of mind as to what had actually occurred. He dressed quickly and went downstairs, a vague sense of guilt in his heart. In the breakfast-room his mother was sitting at their usual table, alone. Thank goodness his enemy was not present. Edgar would not have to look upon that hateful face of his. And yet, as he went to the table, he was by no means sure of himself. "'Good morning,' he said. His mother made no reply, not even so much as glanced up, but kept her eyes fixed in a peculiarly rigid stare on the view from the window. She looked very pale, her eyes were red-rimmed, and there was that quivering of her nostrils which told so plainly how wrought up she was. Edgar bit his lips. Her silence bewildered him. He really did not know whether he had hurt the baron very much, or whether his mother had any knowledge at all of their encounter. The uncertainty plagued him, but her face remained so rigid that he did not even attempt to look up, for fear that her eyes, now hidden behind lowered lids, might suddenly jump out at him. He sat very still, not daring to make the faintest sound, and raising the cup to his lips, and putting it back on the saucer with the utmost caution, and casting furtive glances from time to time at his mother's fingers, which played with her spoon nervously, and seemed, in the way they were bent, to show a secret anger. Full a quarter of an hour he sat at the table in an oppressive expectancy of something that never came. Not a single word from her to relieve his tension. And now, as his mother rose, still without any sign of having noticed his presence, he did not know what to do, whether to remain sitting at the table or to go with her. He decided upon the latter, and followed humbly, though conscious how ridiculous was his shadowing of her now. He reduced his steps so as to fall behind, and she, still studiously refraining from noticing him, went to her room. When Edgar reached the door, he found it locked. What had happened? He was at his wit's end. His assurance of the day before had deserted him. Had he done wrong, after all, in attacking the baron? And were they preparing a punishment for him, or a fresh humiliation? Something must happen, he was positive, something dreadful, very soon. Upon him and his mother lay the sultriness of a brewing thunderstorm. They were like two electrified poles that would have to discharge themselves in a flash, and for four solitary hours 
the child dragged around with him from room to room the burden of this premonition until his thin little neck bent under the invisible yoke, and by midday it was a very humble little fellow that took his seat at table. "'Hello,' he ventured again, feeling he had to break the silence, ominous as a great black storm-cloud. But still his mother made no response, keeping her gaze fixed beyond him. Edgar, in renewed alarm, felt he was in the presence of a calculated, concentrated anger such as he had never before encountered. Until then his mother's scoldings had been outbursts of nervousness rather than of ill-feeling, and soon melted into a mollifying smile. This time, however, he had, as he sensed, brought to the surface a wild emotion from the depth of her being, and this powerful something that he had evoked terrified him. He scarcely dared to eat. His throat was parched and knotted into a lump. His mother seemed not to notice what was passing in her son, but when she got up she turned with a casual air and said, "'Come up to my room afterwards, Edgar. I have something to say to you.' Her tone was not threatening, but so icy that Edgar felt as though each word were a link in an iron chain being laid around his neck. His defiance had been crushed out of him. Silently, with a hangdog air, he followed her up to her room. In the room she prolonged his agony by saying nothing for several minutes, during which he heard the striking of the clock, and outside a child laughing and within his own breast his heart beating like a trip-hammer. Yet she too could not be feeling so very confident of herself either, because she kept her eyes averted and even turned her back while speaking to him. "'I shall say nothing to you about the way you behaved yesterday. It was unpardonable, and it makes me feel ashamed to think of it. You have to suffer the consequences now of your own conduct.' All I mean to say to you is that this is the last time you will be allowed to associate with your elders. I have just written to your father that either you must be put under a tutor or sent to a boarding-school where you will be taught manners. I am not going to be bothered with you any more." Edgar stood with bowed head, feeling that this was only the preliminary, a threat of the real thing coming, and he waited uneasily for the sequel. "'You will ask the Baron's pardon.' Edgar gave a start, but his mother would not be interrupted. The Baron left today, and you will write him a letter which I will dictate. Edgar again made a movement which his mother firmly disregarded. No protestations. Here is the paper, and here are the pen and ink. Sit down. Edgar looked up. Her eyes were steely with an inflexible determination. This hardness and composure in his mother were quite new and strange. He was frightened, and seated himself at the desk, keeping his face bent low. The date, upper right-hand corner. Have you written it? Space. Dear Sir, colon. Next line. I have just learned to my regret, got that? To my regret that you have already left Semmering, two M's in Semmering. And so I must do by letter what I had intended to do in person. That is, faster, Edgar, you don't have to draw each letter. Beg your pardon for what I did yesterday. As my mother told you, I am just convalescing from a severe illness and am very excitable. 
On account of my condition, I often exaggerate things, and the next moment I am sorry for it. The back bent over the desk, straightened up. Edgar turned in a flash. His defiance had leapt into life again. I will not write that. It isn't true. Edgar, it is not true. I haven't done anything that I should be sorry for. I haven't done anything bad that I need ask anybody's pardon for. I simply came to your rescue when you called for help. Every drop of blood left her lips. Her nostrils widened. I called for help? You're crazy. Edgar got angry and jumped up from his chair. Yes, you did call for help. In the corridor, when he caught hold of you, you said, Let me go, let me go, so loud that I heard it in my room. You lie. I never was in the corridor with the Baron. He went with me only as far as the foot of the stairs. Edgar's heart stood still at the barefacedness of the lie. He stared at her with glassy eyeballs and cried in a voice thick and husky with passion, You were not in the hall? And he, he did not have his arm around you? She laughed a cold, dry laugh. You were dreaming. That was too much. The child by this time knew that adults lie and resort to impudent little evasions, lies that slip through fine sieves and cunning ambiguities. But this downright denial of an absolute fact face to face threw him into a frenzy. Dreaming, was I? Did I dream this bump on my forehead, too? How do I know who you've been fighting with? But I'm not going to argue with you. You are to obey orders. That's all. Sit down and finish the letter. She was very pale and was summoning all her strength to keep on her feet. In Edgar, a last tiny flame of credulity went out. To tread on the truth and extinguish it as one would a burning match was more than he could stomach. His insides congealed in an icy lump, and everything he said now was in a tone of unrestrained, pointed maliciousness. So I dreamed what I saw in the hall, did I? I dreamed this bump on my forehead, and that you two went walking in the moonlight, and he wanted to make you go down the dark path into the valley? I dreamed all that, did I? What do you think, that I am going to let myself be locked up like a baby? No, I am not so stupid as you think. I know what I know. He stared into her face impudently. To see her child's face close to her own, distorted by hate, broke her down completely. Her passion flooded over in a tidal wave. "'Sit down and write that letter, or—' "'Or what?' he sneered. "'Or I'll give you a whipping like a little child.' Edgar drew close to her and merely laughed sardonically. With that her hand was out and had struck his face. Edgar gave a little outcry, and like a drowning man, with a dull rushing in his ear and flickerings in his eyes, he struck out blindly with both fists. He felt he encountered something soft, a face, heard a cry. The cry brought him to his senses. Suddenly he saw himself and his monstrous act. He had struck his own mother. A dreadful terror came upon him, shame and horror, an impetuous need to get away seized him, to sink into the earth. He wanted to fly far away, far away from those eyes that were upon him. He made for the door, 
and in an instant was gone down the stairs, through the lobby, out on the road, away, away, as though a pack of ravening beasts were at his heels. You've been listening to Part 3 of Stefan Zweig's story, The Burning Secret. Please join me next week for the moving conclusion. In the meantime, be well, be happy, please stay safe, all the best. Thank you.